Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Josh White, who's an author, recording artist, teaching and founding pastor, Door of Hope in Portland, Oregon. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Thank you for joining today's episode. I am connecting with Josh White, recording artist, author, teaching and founding pastor of Door of Hope in Portland, Oregon, and I'm super excited for this podcast today. Before I dig in to the podcast, if you'd like to stay connected, learn more about the guys like us and hear what we're up to, latest podcast release, and also would love to hear from you as well, visit us at theguyslikeus.com and sign up for our newsletter um, at the bottom of the page and a pop-up should appear as well. Well, today I'm connecting with Josh and we talk a little bit about his background growing up in Portland, Oregon area, um, growing up in the outside of the city, moving into Portland, starting a church and being in ministry really for um, a few decades now. Um, we talk about the cross, the centrality of the cross, understanding um, ourselves in the cross, his, his latest book, Stumbling Toward Eternity, Losing and Finding Ourselves in the Cross of Jesus, um, is available. And definitely grab a copy um, and, and tune in. He talks a lot about some of our understandings um, that uh, really we've kind of inherited, perhaps in, in culture and even within our own church. Um, of the of our own autonomy of um, finding ourselves climbing a ladder or he, what he says is ladder theology we uh, and then we just come back and really understand what the what the cross means for us um, in pain and suffering um, in freedom in uh, in so many different ways as well and so I'll let Josh uh, say it for himself and without further ado here is my conversation Thanks so much for joining me and the Guys Like Us podcast here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so um, we were just just chatting. I know you're currently in the Oregon coast, and so a lot of the listeners are, was just checking in where our listeners are based, and a lot of them are kind of in the Midwest, Texas, and the East Coast. And so would love just to kind of start and just to orient us kind of to the landscape you're in in the Pacific Northwest you know, growing up and, and, and then, yeah, starting and, and, uh, and pastoring the Church of, uh, of uh, Door of Hope. Just a little bit about your background and kind of bring us into your life a little bit here. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm actually currently in Cannon Beach. Uh, and it, you ever seen the movie Goonies? Long time ago, yes. Yeah. So there's a scene in the opening scene where the cops are chasing the yes. um, the the bad guys down the beach, and it's it's in Cannon Beach, and it's past this famous rock called Haystack Rock. It's this giant rock that comes right out of yeah. the ocean, and uh, so I'm I'm staying I'm right now I'm teaching at Ecola Bible College this week. Okay. Um, bunch of first year students through the Book of Ephesians, and so mm. uh, so yeah, it's a beautiful place. It's, although it's been really gray and rainy, like Northwest is, but right. Right. Um, yeah, I'm born and raised. Uh, Pacific Northwest. I actually grew up uh, actually just an hour and a half from here, uh, about 30 minutes outside of Portland. And uh, um, I've, you know, I was I was a, 
I was a kid who was uh, raised in a very poor, you know, um, mm. uh, economically depressed, you know, mill town in the Northwest, uh, like Kurt Cobain in Aberdeen, Washington. I was in Longview, Washington, but like Warehouser, the logging company, like kind of ran the city, but as the mills began to close down. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of rough, <laughs> sort of, a, right. I say Longview is the center of the universe and one of the worst places ever. Um, but uh, uh, I was always a, a kid that was, I always felt like I was maybe born in the wrong place and mm. I loved urban environments. So yeah. uh, the moment I graduated from high school, I moved to the city and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I moved to Seattle actually mm -hmm. uh, and pursued music, uh, not as a Christian. I was a secular artist, signed to mm -hmm. Mercury Records in the mid 90s, kind of post grunge. Uh, met my wife in Portland, mm -hmm. who lived on Hawthorne, right where Dora Pope started, in her southeast. Kind of, I always refer mm -hmm. to the east side. Portland's divided by a river, okay. and the east side has always been kind of like the bohemian, weird, carny folk. You know, That's the true. key Portland weird. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> right. It comes from that side of the river. I see. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, okay. Just lots of artists. It was a much more affordable city than Seattle, so it actually um, created a very uh, just this kind of really vital, um, amazing kind of artistic community. Sadly, uh, Portland's changed dramatically since uh, since Darcy and I started the church in hmm. 2009, uh, and and it was dramatically different when we started the church from when we met back right. in 1996. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, a you know the. Uh, we fell in love, and she moved to Seattle. We were there until two th I got saved in '99, and then she came to faith in 2001. Yeah, and then found herself a pastor's wife six months after she became a believer, and me two years after I became a believer. Uh, oh wow! And you know, after I lost my record deal, I kind of, I, I kind of threw in the towel on music, and I uh, gave. When I came to faith, I had a pastor that was encouraging me to. Uh, lead worship, but I hated worship music. I didn't understand it. I was just, it was baffling to me. Mm. Um, and so I, I was in, in a very small church, so they weren't really doing much current stuff. So I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So the first Sunday I led worship, I just wrote seven new songs. It's never a good idea to introduce seven new songs <laughs> to a church. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I ended up signing with Tooth and Nail um, uh, right when I went into full-time ministry. And uh, after one year working at a church in Spokane, I ended up, um, our record took off and I toured all of 2003 and 2004. And, um, and we did like 250 shows and I saw every single state in the U.S. multiple wow. times. <laughs> wow. um, and, uh, and, and that kind of was my baptism into a real understanding of the diversity of, uh, of the church in America. Because one sure. night we'd be playing for John Piper's church in Minneapolis, and the next night we'd be sure. in, we'd drive all night after the show to Georgia and be playing at a Pentecostal church where people were like convulsing under sheets. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I think I need to, I think I need to go anchor myself yeah. in a local church where I can really grow in a, in the context of a community. So I took a job in California um, for two years before coming back to Portland. And then I worked for a guy named John Mark Comer, who's a well-known author, um, for two sure. years before starting Dwarf Hope. So, sure. yeah, it's been a crazy, <laughs> a crazy 21 years of faith. <laughs> wow, to say that. that's amazing. <laughs>
there you, you mentioned seven new worship songs. I know if we introduce one and in most congregations, you get some blank stares and some emails to the pastor after. So <laughs> I'm sure that was, that was quite an experience for you. That's hilarious. I, I got a few handwritten letters from some, from yeah. some older folk. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So, so you mentioned, you know, Portland is, yeah, I mean, I'm on the, I'm in, outside of Boston as well. And so the data points, I think, I have, and I'm sure others have, right? At least for me, it's Portland Timbers is a well-attended soccer stadium because <laughs> I love soccer. Yeah. But then also, it's definitely, um, you know, it's some considered a, a post-Christian or high secularization in that Pacific Northwest Portland area. Um, and yeah, I would say Portland is actually the first truly post-Christian city in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, even more so than, uh, I mean, San Francisco is very similar. The New England is actually the closest when it comes to, but New England has this strange, like Catholic, uh, yeah. the, the East coast has, because it's, sure. you know, it's the origin of the U S there's still these kind of strong roots of like, yeah. of faith, but it's, but it's kind of a, it's often a liberal faith. Uh, you know, you don't have the evangelicalism of sure. the Midwest or, but, the, but, but Portland is a, like, example my son's 21 he lives in new york city now okay um but yeah. he never had a single christian friend growing up in portland public schools um wow like they literally didn't exist <laughs> and, yeah. and it wasn't like they had gone to church i mean these kids are like they have never been to church in their lives yeah. which actually makes portland an amazing city for um being an evangelist it's much easier to share the gospel with people that actually don't have any baggage <laughs> so, That's fair. So Door of Hope is a church that exploded when we started um, back in 2009. I mean, we went from zero to a thousand in the first two years, and it was almost it was almost no transfer growth. In fact, I was known as the pastor that kicked people out of the church if they didn't live in the urban core. I was a little yeah. overly zealous on this, and I just knew okay. that we weren't going to be affected. The churches in the city that actually were Bible believing churches almost had no people in the church that lived in the city. They were all driving in from the suburbs. Right. And so right. I'm like, I want to reach the kids that were like me in my twenties. And so we just had this explosive growth of all these like little millennial, like gutter punks and like yeah. hipster kids. Right. <laughs> it was right. like, it was never safe to eat donuts because it probably came out of a dumpster somewhere. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it was a very, it was a fascinating, um, time and then I ended up hiring Tim Mackey, yeah, um, yeah, who started the Bible Project, and he yeah. was my other teaching pastor for five years. Um, and uh, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I was a very we're much more of a multi generational church now gotcha. because a lot of those kids that got saved, their parents were so excited that their kids were going to church that they, you know, they followed them. Wow, um, and uh, wow. so yeah, but yeah, Portland is very, very post Christian, uh, in, in, in many ways. I actually think it, it makes it a um, a very possible, a place that's very, that's ripe for revival. <laughs> yeah. No, no, absolutely. No, you're right. It's fascinating. New England has this, like this deep rooted sense of traditionalism in like mm -hmm. the, the monument, the institution, right. Of faith, but has lost. Yeah. I mean, it's actually some, some say it's Christianity is growing because there's so many ethnic churches that are now coming in and planting or at least kind of more evangelical Bible believing. Um, but then all mm -hmm. that's, as you mentioned, right, the mainline churches and that's, I mean, I'm 29. And so my parents, like that generation, 50, 40s, 50s, 60s, didn't necessarily pass the faith 
well along to that generation. Yeah. And so yeah. most of my friends, it's, it's kind of the, their, if their parents were nominal Catholics, as you said, or nominal kind of mainliners, then they might have gone to church like a handful of times, but then, you know, right. but yeah, so it's just very fascinating. Well, so you mentioned there's some of the, some of the big shifts as well in, um, in Portland, just in the last, since 2009. So just in the last 13 years, um, I, I guess would love to kind of get up to speed and, you know, these last, these last few years here of you have a book coming out February 28th, stumbling toward eternity, losing and finding ourselves in the cross of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. and so what has really prompted, you know, this, this book, what have you been seeing that said, wow, we need to, to really kind of look back at the cross and maybe re-examine it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, right now, I think across the nation, uh, and, and probably many places in the West, you know, the Western worlds, uh, but I would say, especially in America, um, there's been definitely a reckoning uh, within within evangelicalism, uh, and I, and I, and we're seeing. I mean, most churches across the U.S. were cut in half during COVID, um, and I, and Portland was no exception. I mean, it was a place where I mean, pastors just start dropping like flies. I mean, the uh, it's like we're the whitest city in the U.S., and it was like I mean, we took the racial the racial reckoning and turned it into a white spectacle like no other place. I mean, sure. you remember like the, the videos of the wall of moms. I mean, it was just like, sweet Lord, it was so embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, my good friend Craig Ockpaw is a, uh, he's a black pastor in, in Jersey city. Um, his parents are from Nigeria. Yeah. <laughs> I remember him sending me a text and he's like, I don't think your people are helping me. <laughs> and Jeez. I'm like, I would agree. Um, but I think a lot of that, a lot of that actually speaks to even the the nature of a of um, the misstep of churches in in really um, liberal cities, which is that the, the emphasis was not the gospel or the cross, but on social justice. And I'm kind of with Jacques Ellul. I think justice was destroyed the moment we added an adjective to the front of it, hmm. um, and uh, the the abandonment of witness, the church's primary purpose as witness. Hmm community witness around the living Christ um, is deeply troubling. I think the church, um, you know, there's been a, a renewed interest in contemplative practices and um, spiritual formation. Sure. But often I think spiritual formation is a cloaked, is, is, is really just become a cloaked uh, and spiritualized term for self-help. Hmm. And self-help movements in, you know, yeah. whatever, an $11 billion industry um, and I think the church, unfortunately, um, in many places became a place where people went to know how they could personally grow in their walk with Jesus, um, mm-hmm. forgetting that actually the, the primary purpose isn't about what's happening in you. It's about you coming together. It's not good that man be alone. We need one another. And uh, as I've seen people abandon the church, the question I've, I've been asking is, and what the, what the book focuses in on, is I think that the distaste in America for mm-hmm. um, for evangelicalism right now, especially as you see in this polarization, churches moving left um, and becoming more about justice in the gospel, mm-hmm. or churches moving hard right where where it's it's about Jesus um, and the salvation of a nation mm-hmm. <laughs> or some sure. sort of idea of what they think the nation ought to be. It's mm-hmm. like it's like 
uh, like William F. Buckley and Jesus had a baby or something. It's like it's ter- it's terrifying to me. Sure. Uh, so Christian nationalism or liberalism, mm. these are like the extreme poles that we're kind of caught between. But I think that we also have poles even within within Christian ideologies. You have really intense reform theology, but there's been a great reckoning in the whole young, restless reform with the fall of so many big leaders. Um, and then you have this kind of this reaction to reform theology, and there's this whole new movement. You know, I feel like it's like the children of N.T. Wright and the children of John Piper constantly battling each other, while the rest of us were like, I just want to know how I can love Jesus and how I can love others. Right, right. Um, and I, I think of, I, it brings me immediately to that verse where the Apostle Paul said, hey, the Jews seek after signs and the Greeks seek after knowledge, hmm. but we preach Christ crucified. Right. And I think that this is the, the problem is that pride in knowledge and pride in experience seem to be the two extremes. But the cross is so counterintuitive because it is always offensive, not just for the non-believer. It actually is a stumbling block for the believer because it is a constant, it's a constant leveling um, of our own egos. And it it calls us to what I call um, the good death, a daily dying to the lie of what God did not intend for us Mm. so that we can come alive in the fullness of Jesus. And so what I think Mm. part of the reckoning that we've seen with the fall of leaders like Ravi Zacharias and, you know, he got the Royce report, like constantly uh, revealing leaders with scandal after scandal uh, in the movement that I got saved into, which was the Calvary Chapel movement, which is much bigger on the West Coast than the East Coast. Yeah. Although there's a few big ones on the East Coast. Yep. One big one in Bangor, Maine. That's funny. <laughs> but, That's really funny. Um, but yeah. I think that the, you know, that what I was kind of taught and is the kind of the, the sad underbelly of some unhealthy things that weren't dealt with and when the Jesus movement happened, which was uh, this idea that the, tr- that the Christian's responsibility is to present, especially for leaders, is to present to the congregation and to the world an ideal that we can't keep. Hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. what I push toward is a radical vulnerability um, that you actually, you know, um, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are, hmm. and yet he loves us still which is radical grace, which is the only real motivator. Um, hmm. And the cross is the great reminder that grace is always unfair, that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer. And I don't get to, hmm. I don't get to create an um, us against them mentality. So I think churches are hurting that have created this idea that we have to cloister ourselves against the, 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 the dangerous left. Um, right. And you know, the, the, this Marxist socialist agenda of the left, sure. Um, and as troubling as that agenda might be, it's just as troubling to, to believe that, um, that, that, that we would think that somehow America is God's, you know, new promised land. I think that God isn't in the, in, in the business of saving nations. He's in the business of saving people. Um, and so what I, I think the cross is, is it brings us back to a centeredness hmm. that allows the spirit sovereignty in our lives um, and it, it, what I think we need is a soft, strong balance of word and spirit. And we're only going to find that at the foot of the cross. Uh, because, you know, as I tell these students I'm teaching right now, it's like, you know, I can come and teach you verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. But I'm not necessarily convinced that you having a more robust uh, understanding of Ephesians is the most desperately needed thing right now. What I'm interested in is, do you actually know Jesus? <laughs> and, and what does right. that mean? <laughs> so, right. um, and. So this is 
my book is actually a combination. I'm like a literature fanatic, so okay. um, I, uh, I, about six years ago, I, I decided to read the the Modern Library: Hundred Greatest Novels of the Twentieth Century, yeah. and uh, that kind of set kind of my literary love on fire. Um, sure. And I purposely waited to write a book. I kept getting approached when the church was exploding. Hmm. Christian publishers always looking for the new like big church that's reaching young people. And they asked right. me, like, I get approached, like, you should write a, would you be interested in writing a book? I'm like, why would you offer me a book deal? You don't even know if I can write. Um, <laughs> I think that that would maybe be a good question for publishers to start with. <laughs> but they don't care because they have ghostwriters. And it's like, I'm like, which is so offensive to my sensibilities. I don't, it's hard for me to even get my head around it. Um, yeah. But my art was that I wanted to write about, um, about the kind of the trauma and kind of significant life events that I, you mm. know, growing up in a home where my father abandoned uh, my family when I was one, lifelong drug addict and, right. you know, alcoholic, multiple stepdads, you know, I grew up in poverty mm. and it's like I didn't come to faith till I was 27. So I started actually realizing that you can't run away from the past. You know, I, I took that verse maybe too seriously, forgetting what lies behind and pressing toward the goal. And then I hit my 40s and, and all of a sudden realized that I was being haunted by things that happened when I was seven. <laughs> and so the question of does the gospel actually speak um, into our past and our present and does it provide us a legitimate hope for the future? And so I, the way that I framed the book was I created this literary memoir and then uh, the, my editor, Paul Pastor, encouraged me. He's like, I had another book that I was writing on the seven words from the cross. And he's like, what if you merged these two worlds? Which was very difficult to do. Because mm. you'd never want to violate the narrative by being overly prescriptive. Um, but I found a way to kind of take these, what I call fragments, of these kind of significant life events and sort of weave them into each statement from the cross, which I believe Jesus is actually ex he's expositing the cross while right. he's dying on it. <laughs> and so, um, so looking at things like forgiveness and loneliness and the death of dreams and, you know, human longing and, you know, what is, what is rest look like? And, and I actually, it ended up being an over the, the overarching narrative of, in the memoir pieces. It deals a lot with my relationship with my dad mm. who died last, last February. Yeah. Um, and who came to faith two years ago. Um, even though it was a very primitive faith, much like the thief on the cross, about all he had by the end was, Jesus remember me, <laughs> but right. that's the beauty of grace. And so I kind of explore those themes of asking the question, does the, does the gospel actually have anything to say to us when we're hurting? Right. Um, and I argue that actually, we probably will experience Jesus the most deeply in our suffering. And we, we can never explain human suffering, but when we look to the cross, we can trust that God has done something about it, that he's entered into it, and that he's not he's not immune to it. Right, right. Well, there's there's a whole lot there, so I'd love to just unpack a little bit a few of the things yeah. that, that um, I think the bigger, I think what I'm hearing as some of these big themes is, um, I think people are concerned about, right, or is this, is, I think, freedom and or autonomy. I, it was, there's a book, I think, Drama of Scripture by Bartholomew and um, Goheen, and it talks yeah, about... Yeah, so I'm connected with some of the, I had Chris Gonzalez on with Surge School and some of the folks down in Arizona, and there's this, this discipleship kind of into the story, right, of scripture, and one of the components of the fall is that 
we seek autonomy, right? And that was our yeah. own self-autonomy. And I think that's a challenge with this self-help perhaps movement. It's that it certainly accents or emphasizes the self-help nature of our own striving or our own progress. And then, yeah, and then you, we kind of realize we're like, wow, well, you know, I, we're preaching the victory of Christ and the and what's to come, but we realize that we're still wrestling with some trauma or and even our daily sins that we thought we maybe overcame, but we're realizing I, I, yeah. I can't escape this because there is this condition that we're living in as well. Yeah, that's why I, I like to say one of the, the I, a theme that I hit on continually, even on the cover, there's like a little picture of a ladder and a ladder picture of the cross. Sure. And I, I am a huge um, fan of Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. And, and he talks about the difference between understanding. He says a preacher's primary responsibility is to understand the difference between law, law and gospel. Um, yeah. How do we distinguish between what he calls the theology of glory or mm. man's, our own desire to be our own gods uh, sure. and the theology of the cross? And uh, um, Gerhard Ford's How to Be a Theologian of the Cross, I think one of the best books hmm. on the unpacking of that book, sure. uh, on the unpacking of the Heidelberg Disputation. But I kind of um, took the, some of those concepts of that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Christ. Um, but our natural tendency, our default setting is what I call moving toward a ladder theology. Hmm. Um, and it's funny because the ladder is only only mentioned once in scripture it's Jacob's ladder and it shows yeah. like the, the 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 gulf between God and man uh, angels ascending and descending upon this ladder God and you know as powerful as the covenantal promise that God makes from the top of the ladder over Jacob when he's sleeping uh, when he when he has his vision uh, the ladder itself is this mysterious symbol um, and scripture doesn't address it again until John chapter 1 and the last hmm. passage in John chapter 1 Jesus says, "Hey, you think you're you're impressed that I knew? <laughs> you think it's miraculous that I knew you, that I that I saw you um, uh, under the tree?" He's like, "I tell you this: you're going to see greater things than this, for you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man." Referencing back to the ladder and saying, "No, we don't climb our way to heaven. The Tower of Babel is the archetype of man's attempt to um, <clears throat> to reach to the heavens apart from God." Sure. Uh, and that's what cities even represent. That's why the cities are always Babylon. They're, they're, it's, it's a, cities are a place where, where we see what humans are capable of doing without God. Um, and so um, right. I, I think that the, that John 1 reminds us that no, the, hmm. the ladder is an insurmountable distance. Hmm. And Jesus is the ladder, which is why the gospel is actually down to earth. It's God come down to us. Wow, that's fascinating. And so, yeah. So I talk about ladder theology, and what I argue is that that ladder theology is what the world is driven by. Um, but it's also what we as Christians we buy into the lie of what you know um, the the philosophers call the heroic ascent. You know, sure. it's what the it's what the Gnostics push toward. It's like you you got to climb your way to a virtuous life. It's what right. Stoicism's built on. Sure. Um, but it man, it finds its way into Christianity. It's like we tell people outside of the church, hey, Jesus loves you, come as you are, uh, give up your ladders, quit trying to earn your salvation, and then we get them into the church, and then we give them a whole new ladder that's actually more difficult than the one they were climbing before. Oh. Um, and so all we do is exhaust our adherence. But hmm. when we look to the world, it's why we're so offended when our celebrities take their own lives, is because they have climbed to the peak of human, human accomplishment. It's like they've summited the mountain, 
where the rest of us can't even sneak and get to base camp. And then they they look back down at us and they're like, "Sorry, there's nothing up here," and jump. <laughs> yeah, and we're um, we're not we're not upset because we're um, we feel bad that they're gone. We're actually angry because we think we would actually treat it differently if we had what they had. But and we don't like the idea that if I was to get as far as they they got, it would still amount to nothing. <laughs> and, right. um, so right. I yeah. think the the cross is the great cure hmm. to the to life. like that's why I, I have a state phrase that I use many times in the book. The cross is not something you climb; it's something you die on. Hmm. Hmm. Cross is not something you climb; it's something you die on. I love that. Yeah, yeah. The the other element, and I think you've kind of touched on this too, is this element of the cross. Like people are concerned of justice, right? And Mm -hmm. Um, what, you know, and I think you, you have to look to the scriptures and to look to the complete understanding of God's justice and just the, almost the, the, the first kind of, when I think of the cross as justice, almost, I'm looking at like John 19 and the fulfillment of like when, when Jesus says it is, it is finished. And there's Mm -hmm. this, almost this completion moment of like, okay, this is the cross. And we've, it's a, this is a historical event that has the world has responded to, right? Everyone is aware that this happened. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess just the, you know, w- one of these things is how do we kind of rest in the cross now? Because I, yeah. I think there, there can be this, I, I grew up in Catholic school, and so there is this, you know, this understanding of like, you got to continually die to yourself. And it almost, it was just this like, yeah, it can kind of get into this workspace mentality. But also it was just like, I always felt so guilty. And it was, and, yeah. um, and so how do you, how do you, resp- you know, how do you have that healthy understanding of grace and, and, uh, and everything? Yeah. So grace, I would say to have a right understanding of grace, grace, it is inevitable that you will be accused of antinomianism, <laughs> which is anti-law. I actually think you're probably sure. closer to the truth if someone accuses you of being too, you know, I, it was, uh, um, James for our component. I don't think I'm saying his last name right. I think it's pronounced differently than that. But nonetheless, uh, yeah. he, he once said, he, he said, yeah. listen, grace, is, uh, grace may not be cheap, but it is always free. <laughs> and, uh, it's well put. Uh, yeah. and this is one of the great, I think, the pictures with the cross. When I, when I talk about, I, I'm not like anti-justice, of course. Uh, I just don't think the church's primary responsibility hmm. uh, is, is justice, because justice requires judgment. Uh, and, and what we are called, uh, is uh, and judgment creates an us against them mentality. Uh, Jesus sure. said, you know, don't judge <laughs> one another. Uh, and and yeah. Paul says specifically, do not judge those outside of the church, uh, which is what we spend tend to spend the most of the time judging. Sure. Uh, he said, and why would we be judging people that are dead in their sin anyway? Um, it's like what we need to be bringing them is what we need to actually ask the question is, um, mm. you know, it's like when I watch people that are um, that are going after kind of um, straw man ideologies that are kind of plaguing our country right now. I I appreciate the fact that okay, they're seeing the argument for what it is, you know, whether it's whether it's gender fluidity or you know uh, some of the the, the missteps. Uh, in um, in you know the uh, I mean many of the kind of hot topic issues of today. Yeah. It's like, but what I what it frustrates me and most of these most of these guys that are going after these uh, 
these sort of arguments, guys and gals, is that it, it, it's done in a way that it, it's like, it's just steamrolling over the very people they're supposed to be loving. Um, it's like, okay, yeah. great, you won yeah. the argument, but does that person want to, right. does that person want to know Jesus now? <laughs> and so, um, and, and, right. it's, and I think that that's where we have to ask the question is like, is what is the purpose of the cross? Mm. Uh, a great example of this, and I address this in the book, is that yeah. not only is there the, the ladder, the problem of ladder theology, but there's also a problem of this is that um, we don't tend to see ourselves correctly. Uh, and what I mean by that is there's another law that I, I call the law of mixture. Hmm. And what I mean by the law of mixture, it's Luther's famous phrase, Jesus saved me from sin, why didn't he save me from sinning? And, and what I can define the law of mixture as is that on hmm. this side of eternity, everything that we do, even in the power of the Spirit as mm. Christians, is still infected with sin. The good news is that all sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with. So uh, what I like to say is sin, even forgiven sin, still has the ability to wreak havoc in our lives, which is why <laughs> why we need to why we need to recognize the words and why we need to be quick to confess. Mm. Well, that's why I think what the church should be moving toward is radical confession. Mm. That radical vulnerability is just the willingness to speak out. I think unconfessed sin hides God from our experience. Confessed sin becomes the very place where we experience him the most fully. Ex- example of this like yeah. I'm driving to church and there's a cyclist in front of me and Portland's filled with cyclists and I don't like them very much because um, they think they're cars but they're not and so so I get mad and the guy keeps swerving in front of me and then I speed up around him and almost hit him off the road he gets angry and flips me off and I and I get mad and maybe say something and then as I'm driving away I'm like oh my gosh I think that guy goes to my church I think he's actually on the way to church because I was running late because I'm always late so mm-hmm. so here I am I'm speeding I'm breaking the law I'm my anger. Whoever's angry with his brother is a murderer. I, like I've already committed murder. But, you know, I'm like I didn't even get, out, get get a half a mile from my house. So I get to the church. What's the best thing to do? Pretend it didn't happen. I'm like, there's a million bicyclists at Door Pope. I can't take risks with that. So I have to confess it. <laughs> so yeah. the first thing yeah. I do is just share. Like I just want to say, yeah, I may or may not have yelled some expletives at a cyclist. I think you might be here. I'm really sorry. But I think that, man, mm. that's like, some people are like, whoa, 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 you're a pastor and you did, I'm like, I'm a man, like everybody else, and who's broken and flawed, and I'm saved by grace, and that's why grace is unfair. What I like people to remember is on the cross, Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place, hmm. as well in that he died for both the victim and the victimizer, yeah. and we will all play both roles. Um, and often we're experiencing them at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and in a hyper-victimization um, culture, um, man, it is so important that we remember that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer. And so, mm. uh, to be conduits of grace, the cross is the means by which we which we maintain grace. Because that law of mixture, I think the closer we get to Jesus, the more we are aware of mm. the mixture within us. <laughs> um, so I don't right. think the goal of Christian, the Christian life is climbing a ladder, which is arriving. Sure. It's, the goal of the Christian life is knowing. Nor do I think uh, the, um, the goal of the Christian life is sinning less. I think the goal of the Christian life is loving more, mm. which actually leads to sinning less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, so I, that's where I think yeah. the cross theology actually mm. answers a lot of those 
puzzling enigmas and those things that can create so much despair and rage within the human heart today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you, what I'm hearing, it's like the, the cross is like the great equalizer in a sense too, of like, you're no more, no less than anybody because you, you, yeah. re, when you go to the cross, truly you realize yourself and you're, you, you know, you realize that you're accepted more than, than you ever believed, but you also realize that you're broken more than you ever, ever thought as well. And so, yeah, I like that. And, that, and that's, and that's the beauty. And that's the, Jesus, the first thing Jesus said from the cross was not, Father, judge them. It was, right. Father, forgive them. And he wasn't pleading with a reluctant Father. We can't play the Godhead against its, against himself. Like, the, Jesus isn't the, the gentle, forgiving son, and the, the Father's the angry, sure. Sure. vengeful, you know, person in the Godhead. Uh, God does not need a psychiatrist. He's consistent with himself. Mm. As T.F. Torrance once said, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. When Jesus said, I only speak those things which please the Father, when he said, Father, forgive them, he is revealing that it is the heart of the Father to forgive. Hmm. Um, and and But the beauty of that is that forgiveness is possible, but the other side of that is that ignorance is not innocence, sure. <laughs> and there's, that there's much that needs to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's why I think Paul yeah. said he has been forgiven much, loves much. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a simple principle. It's like the more we understand how much we've been forgiven, uh, the more we will actually be able to walk hmm. in love toward a world that's difficult. And Portland is not an easy city right now. Hmm. Our homeless problem and, I mean, the fentanyl and um, and meth uh, issues on the streets, it's, it's insane. I mean, many portions of our city looks like scenes out of Mad Max. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it's easy to get very, very frustrated. And I've even found myself like Jonah, where it's like, like I'm so angry over the city. It's like it's almost like I don't want. It's like I, I want to run away, but I have found that every time I've tried to escape the call uh, of God upon my life to a city like Portland, he keeps. I keep getting vomited up on the, the same shore. So yeah. the question is, will I end the story bitter like Jonah? Like I knew you were going to save them because that's what you're like. <laughs> that's just like right. the loveless right. heart of the of the of the the vessel of God. But it, that's a terrible. Thing. So, yeah, for me, um, yeah. stumbling toward eternity is a way of addressing these things, hopefully in a very practical um, and yeah. thought-provoking way of connecting connecting the theological yeah. ramifications of the cross with everyday, with everyday life. And one thing I wanted to say, um, mm. I do address the question of liberty quite a bit hmm. in the church, but this is what I like to say, is that Jesus said, this, whoever the Son of Man um, sets free shall be free indeed you know uh, and you know Jesus has come to give us life and life abundantly Satan the ruler of this age has come to give us death and give it to us abundantly uh, but that life um, is something that brings freedom but it's not freedom in our in declaration of independence mm. idea um, uh, I think our idea of freedom as Americans because it takes pioneering personalities and independent personalities to go across the Atlantic and settle, mm-hmm. <laughs> settle a hostile territory. Um, it, but the, the downside of that, of the American mm-hmm. spirit, is that kind of individualistic, mm-hmm. my freedom means that nobody has the right to tell me what to do. But all freedoms are enjoyed within, the, within parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I believe Jesus is us free from is actually the need to be free from the difficulties of existence. Mm-hmm because he is with us. Yeah. And I think that's just where I wanted to end too, is 
you know, you mentioned part of your story was pain and suffering. And I, I think that's a, that's a really relevant question is how does the cross ad- uh, address the pain and suffering of life? And I, I, yeah, I work in, um, we do a meal outreach program to a lot of folks who are addicted. And as a result, you know, or, um, many of whom are now homeless as well. And so you, you, you can, when you see what's around you, you see the world, it's not the way it should be. And you can see the problems of it, but in the world, but then also in yourself too. And these, and I know a lot of folks here are struggling and wrestling in some cross in their own life or some pain in their own life. So yeah. where, where, do, where is their comfort or encouragement of, you know, Jesus at the kind of in the cross here? Yeah. That's the pain. Um, you know, my dad, uh, um, my dad's alcoholism was so rampant um, at the end of his life that he lost his ability to walk. He lived in a little cabin in Soldatna. And my dad is like a curmudgeon. I mean, I would like to say that when he was young, he looked like a more handsome version of Kurt Cobain. And when he was old, he looked like a more weathered version of Willie Nelson. <laughs> and uh, right, he sat alone right. in a cabin um, at the end of his life. Um, you know, the last couple of years he lived by himself. Um, he was, he was the only thing he did, he got 800 bucks a month and he had a pizza delivery guy bring him uh, one pizza a week and, you know, giant like liters of vodka and a big carton of, you know, camel reds. And he would just sit in his chair unbathed for a month at a time. Um, uh, he was in, in and out of ICU yeah. probably three to four times a month. Uh, and he came to faith. Like I said, that faith is really primitive. But, you know, one thing he never did, he never apologized to me for his abandonment of, yeah. and a lot of people are like, why would you invest in your dad, you know, when he didn't do anything for you? I don't, it doesn't seem like, you know, it isn't, it doesn't seem fair. And I'm like, yeah. well, that's the whole point of grace. It's not fair. Yeah. And that was what Jesus used wow. in my, in my journey with my father hmm. was the A, it's like, how can I say that I have faith in Jesus? And how can I believe that he is in the business of seeking and saving the lost and, and bringing healing to the hurting? when I refused to hold those same, those same beliefs out to my dad. And I said, I can't believe that Jesus loves me and refused to love and, and, and then refused to love my dad. I'm actually fighting against the very essence of the gospel, that everything about it's upside down. And when I began to truly hmm. accept that, that man, when I allowed the cross um, to be that large in my mind, it's like, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus and he pursued me still. Hmm. It says honor your mother and father, and it doesn't. It, there's no contingency. Now it doesn't say honor your mom and dad if they were awesome. And thank goodness, once you're a parent, you're grateful. It doesn't say that. Um, but, but that was yeah. the thing. It was the journey toward me learning to love my dad. Um, it hurt. It was. It was suffering. Hmm. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says all forgiveness is suffering. Uh, that because you have one of two options, you can either make the person pay, which is justice. <laughs> um, or you can, or you can forgive, which is absorbing the wrong into yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And by the power of the Spirit, we can do that. Mm-hmm. And I was able to forgive my dad, but you know, the forgiveness that was that became evidence was real wasn't until I actually got close enough to him to smell the stench of his unbathing, mm-hmm. to see the death in his skin yeah. and the uh, and the the rattle in his voice. Um, and to look death in the eye and suffering in the eye and be willing to embrace it. 
and I wow. literally was with my dad looking into his eyes when he died. Yeah. And it was the most powerful moment for me um, because he was so scared to die. As the sad thing was that was why he drank so much. He, he knew he was dying, and so he would drink to escape the fear, which only led to, you know, quickening the death. And I, I just remember he opened his eyes right before he passed. Right. And, uh, and at first he couldn't breathe. He died of COPD. And he, he looked, you know, it's a terrible thing to watch someone not be able to breathe. And I just put my hand on his face and just said, Dad, it's okay. Um, you know, you know Jesus. He's with you. And it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and a calmness came over him. And we were listening to a song that I wrote. And he was crying while he looked at yeah. me. Um, and, uh, but there was like this piece that came over and 30 seconds before the song was done, my dad took his last breath and, and I, I remember the deepest desire to look away from his suffering. But when I looked into his suffering, I believe that what my, what I experienced was the peace of God hmm. and the, the ability to trust my dad's soul to Jesus, hmm. that God is actually that good. Um, and at the same time, I think what my dad experienced was actually Jesus bringing him home through my, through my personhood, my, uh, my proximity, my physical proximity. Wow. We are the carriers of the living God. Uh, we are the t- temple of the living God. I don't think what my dad saw at the end was his son. I think what he saw was the son saying, it's time to come home. Yeah. But I needed to be there for him to experience that. And that's why we have to understand um, that that actually the place where we will experience the, the presence of Jesus most powerfully is often in the suffering of our lives. Mm. I don't have to, I don't need to know why we suffer as human mm. beings. I'm kind of like Alosha and Brothers Karamazov. You know, I don't know why suffering exists, but I believe God has done something about it. Mm. Um, and I, I'm going to trust that, um, that it's not the end of the story. <laughs> and so, which allows me to enter into the suffering of the world. Wow, that's so rich. And, think that you're right this like this escapist mentality or this fear of engaging it is like often what like limits us from really being that's the vulnerability is actually engaging it and and embodying and being there for it but i think those are the most it's like the sweetest and richest moments and when you can really see the see the cross demonstrated for you as well as gift yeah as you do it as you're as you're as you're in his likeness and do it with others as well yeah, and, and I always say that God, Jesus showed up with my dad, uh, showed up to my dad through me, man of mixture that I am, in right. spite of me. That's why I say Jesus doesn't want this or that part of you. He wants the good and the and the bad, yeah. <laughs> the smart and the stupid. Yeah. <laughs> As I told my dad, my dad's like, I just feel, I, I, when he told me that he had prayed to receive Jesus with the chaplain at the church two years before he died, he was yeah, Josh, I'm not sure that it stuck, though, <laughs> was his word. <laughs> and I said, like that, I think that I'm like you're worried about what you think you need to do for him, and mm-hmm. I just want to encourage you. Mm-hmm. I believe that Jesus's grace is stickier than your doubt, and he goes, "I believe that, son," and I do pray to him every day. And then he asked me the funniest question. He goes, "Can I ask you a question?" I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, "Is it okay if I call him the big fella?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I said." I thought about it for a second. I'm like, as long as you started with Jesus, <laughs> and he goes, he goes, uh, I did. But I like to think of him as the big fella, and that shows how primitive my dad's faith was. Sure, but sure. Did the thief on the cross have a working understanding of soteriology? Like he didn't know anything. He was like, all I know is that guy yeah. seems innocent. <laughs> Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is kind yeah. of like 
Jesus is Lord, which those three words are kind of the gospel right. sum total. Right. Um, and I and I have to remind myself that uh, Jesus is in the business of turning thieves into sheep, hmm. and that's a powerful thing. <laughs> that is. That is. It's fascinating. And you mentioned this earlier. Is like. I thought this was crazy, but the like people even in in Portland, like the kids are now impacting their parents, and then just hearing your story as well as the the impact that you had and how God used you to to yeah to share something so powerful with your with your father. And I, I think oftentimes we think that I don't know we just have this mentality that no, our parents I can't minister to my parents, um, but I think just an encouragement to folks listening that like yeah. Can do God can do certainly do wonders and crazy things through you to your parents. And I think that can often be the hardest people to to minister to is our family. And so, oh, um, yeah. What is Mary Carr, uh, one of my favorite writers who lives in Boston? Uh, she in um, in her book Lit, she said, "A dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, hey, well, th- thanks so much, Josh. J- just yeah, just to close, just where can we find you? Um, by the time this is released, the the um, the book will be available. So where we can get a hold of the book and just anything else you want to mention? Yeah, um, well, uh, uh, stumbling toward eternity is available um, uh, um, on everywhere Amazon. It's it's Waterbrook Multnomah Press, which is the imprint of um, Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audiobook will also be um, available. I just finished reading it this week, which was super fun. Um, and uh, um, you can uh, actually look look up Door of Hope, which is the church I pastor, uh, which is just uh, Door of Hope PDX, um, like the Portland Airport. Door of Hope PDX dot org, uh, and um, and then I you know I still write. A, a large chunk of the music for the church and mm. uh and we have a label called deeper well but um you can actually find me josh white on spotify and i think i'm going to be releasing a record not long after the book uh, with songs i wrote for each statement of the cross um so cool. i am on like social media like instagram but i don't use it much to the chagrin of my publisher and i've looked at twitter and i have a twitter account but i just can't, can't bring myself to think that I have something that interesting to say that everybody should read it um, yeah. and I just don't like the hostility on it but I'm getting a lot of pressure to use it <laughs> yeah yeah, so, yeah. I, I'm, I'm only going to do TikTok I'm going to TikTok I'm just going to do it and dance for it. yeah <laughs> have you, well, you just put your kids on the TikTok and then they'll they'll That's right. they'll manage it for you yeah yeah alright well very good well thanks so much and, and uh, God bless you and the city of Portland and, um, and the book and and all that good stuff as well. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah. yeah and let's connect next time I'm in Boston. We'll do. We'll do. All right. Hey, take care. Thank yeah. you so much.